Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm David. And this is House Podcastica Westworld Edition. This week, very excited to be covering the original 1973 Westworld movie. Yeah, I actually feel like this is way overdue. We should have probably covered this a long time ago. It's tremendously overdue. And Karen and I were saying, didn't we do this? But <laughs> we didn't. It, I think it was a Jason and Karen show, and we just talked about the movie, but we didn't really do the movie. Yeah, I mean... Touched on it. You know, when the Westworld series was announced for HBO, I was excited because I had seen this movie probably when I was seven or eight years old on TV, and not since. And I hadn't seen it since until last night. So... So we we definitely didn't cover it before. You guys must have talked about it, and I talked about my childhood memories. But um, it was really fun to go back and you know see how much of I, I barely remembered anything. I just remembered being scared by it and and a faceless robot that was really dangerous. Yeah, and um, I know I have told this story for people listening who have listened to Westworld cast, but this is the movie in the history of my life that scared me more than any other. Wow. I thought when it was like, I forgot about I, that. Yeah. I was like seven or eight years old and, um, we used to go to spring training every year for a couple of weeks in Arizona. Cause uh, my dad was covering baseball. So we would actually get out of school and, and go there. It was great, but we were staying with some family friends and they let my sister and I watch this movie and it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and I, I couldn't sleep and, and, um, you know, was freaking out. And I remember my parents were really mad at the family friends. They were like, why'd you let them watch this movie? <laughs> were you mad or were you? I don't know if I was mad, but, um, it, it really, like, these kind of things can mess slinger. you up. As yeah. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so here it, you are, you like the series now. So it's interesting how that works sometimes. I mean, it always, this movie always stuck with me and it was kind yeah. of a cult movie. Like yeah. I would talk to people about this movie and they're like, what are you talking about? And so it, it really, I enjoyed that it became a thing. With I happened to see it. I remember my stepdad was really into it when we watched it. Um, well, before we get too far in, I should mention for people who like jumped onto this podcast with either Cobra Kai or Mandalorian, if you go back just a little bit further in the feed, you'll see that David and I covered season three of the HBO's Westworld series, which is the main reason why we're talking about this movie right now. And then um, you can go to our Westworld cast to get the first two uh, seasons of that show. We've covered each and every episode of that. 
But let's go back to 1973 and talk about our top five highlights for Westworld. Should we say, I guess briefly, just I usually do, you know, in general, talk a little bit about whether we liked it or not and whether people should stop listening and go watch it and come back if they don't want to be spoiled. What would you say? Yeah, I would say go watch it. Clearly. Um, so it's um, we've found it on HBO Max. If you don't, if you're not a subscriber to HBO Max, on demand, iTunes, whatever, I think it's inexpensive to watch. Hmm. And like three uh, bucks or something. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I probably like it for different reasons now because it, it's kind of vintage and a little, yeah. a little culty it's and a little whatever, anthrop- but, anthropological at this point. Right. <laughs> in right. Some senses. But, I think it's still a really good movie. Yeah. Compelling. Yeah. Yeah, Me too. Like I thought it was really fun to watch and, and fun to see the roots of a lot of the things in the HBO Westworld series. I more than I suspected actually, because when I've been watching the HBO when I'm like, I think this is pretty much all different, but boy, was I wrong? Cause there's a lot that they took from. And, and I did think it held up pretty well in and of itself, especially in the latter half where I was just gripped buy it you know like oh shit but um for the first half i enjoyed it very much but i also do think you kind of need to consider the context of when the movie came out and the fact that like nobody i i I, you know this concept of this fantasy park with all these robots that would cater to your whims and you got to do whatever you wanted was so i think so new at that point that that could really just carry the first part of the movie whereas now i could see people who have watched all through the HBO series and be like, okay, I'm curious and go back and be like, what? Cause they're not thinking about it from the perspective of someone who's like, wow, this is a crazy idea, you know? Well, and that happens so often in yeah. sci-fi, I think compared to other genres where we go back and watch stuff and, and we're like, that's cliche, but and yeah. you don't stop to think about that's what invented the cliche yes. and everything else that came from it is derivative. Other genres too. I mean, I think of Citizen Kane that way, which is considered one of the best movies ever. But if you go back and watch it, you might be like, what? Because you don't realize that it actually invented a lot of the techniques that have just been used in movies ever since, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Anyway, let's get into our top five. What's your number cool. five? So, um, my number five is 1973 itself. The year that the movie came out, that happens to be the year our family moved to California when I was a tiny little kid. So that East coast. Yeah. So that year is sort of frozen in my memory is just the age of like certain cars and the way things looked um, and and that kind of thing. And I think the movie, so first thing that comes to mind in this movie is sort of the sci-fi of it, but the movie is also very period. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a certain look Um, like a lot of movies from that era have very bright, but flat colors. Like it's like a bright color palette, but that's only like seven or eight colors. (laughs) Uh, and all the sort of, um, the clothes, the technology is very, the big lapels. Yeah. The bushy hair and the thick mustache. Yeah. So the people people are all (laughs) seventies and then the, uh, the technology is kind of this futuristic, um, sort of look with computers with a lot of lights in them and spinning tapes and yeah, bl- yeah. blinky buttons and stuff. Yeah. So I love it. And um, this movie starts with something they did a lot of in the seventies, which is like a fake news report. 
with a news reporter who has that seventies look and he's interviewing people who just came out of uh Westworld. I happen to love uh, the show Columbo, which is the same era, and they do this a lot in uh, mm. Columbo. But so he's interviewing a guy who came out of the park, and um, this guy says, I shot six people. And then the news reporter says, what Mr. Lewis means is he shot six robots. <laughs> um, so I love that. One thing I had never noticed before, they get in the elevator. So, right, they arrive on the hovercraft and then all the people get in the elevator to go into the park and the elevator has four buttons in it. Sub-basement, basement, ground level, and hovercraft. I was like, oh, that's very 70s. <laughs> the hovercraft is the top floor. <laughs> and then there, there's also a whole aspect that we would never accept today when everything is so corporate and liability focused, like they're handing these customers guns with real bullets and somehow they have a sensor where they can't shoot a person. They're like using real explosives to blow up brick walls. And I mean, it's so dangerous. Just seems like that would be totally impossible mm -hmm. today. It's a very seventies ethos. I mean, but wouldn't you say the HBO show has the same, the, you need to have suspension of disbelief to get over that aspect. Yeah, I th I think so. But in the HBO version, the technology is just so much more advanced. It, it's just more believable. Yeah, I guess I so. Think. Yeah. I mean, especially when they're talking about how there's an acceptable level of malfunctions that happen all the time. And then you've just got this gun that supposedly has this sensor. I don't think I would want someone to test it out on me and make sure it worked. Yeah. Oops. Oh, that guy was wearing leather. The gun couldn't sense that it was a person. There's just so many things that uh, that could go wrong. I actually didn't realize that that whole, you know, interview, the news interviewing people was a standard thing back then. And it definitely stuck out. I thought it was it was kind of delightful, but also kind of kooky, you know, especially the way they were like, I was the sheriff. They're all like, right. Just happy go lucky about it it was interesting and the movie starts in a little box which is meant to be i guess the tv screen with the news mm -hmm. reporting and i i was watching it last night saying i hope this is not an hbo max malfunction like the whole movie's not like this right but then once the real movie starts it uses the whole screen letterbox yeah and i was thinking about that because i actually didn't i mean i guess if, if i would have thought about it i would have realized that it was a theatrical release originally but I know that I saw it on TV and it was probably square format pan and scan because I'm I sure think that's how yeah. they did everything back then. They didn't show letterbox with the black bars above and below. Yeah, totally. It was, I'm sure we all saw it pan and scan originally. Yeah. So as I'm watching it letterbox now, I'm appreciating, oh, I'm probably seeing this in a better way now than I did back then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know because I was only six and I was probably crying. <laughs> I know I was. <laughs> okay, my turn. Go for it. Okay, so mine is 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 the tone, and as I'm watching this again for the first time in forty five freaking years or whatever it is, I didn't really remember anything about it except that I was scared and that there was a robot cowboy with his face missing for part of it that scared me the most. And so as I'm watching and it did open up with that kind of scene that I thought was kind of kooky. And then 
as it goes along, it really had a vibe like a comedy. I felt like it, it, it is a comedy when it starts out and it's kind of an adventure to a fantasy. Um, I mean, there is the scene where, uh, one of them, John, I think shoots the gunslinger, AKA Yul Brenner in the bar. Was it? And mm -hmm. that was pretty intense, especially for a little kid. I mean, now we've been desensitized. Violence has become more graphic, but this is kind of what I'm talking about, about needing to think about it from the context of which it came. And even though the blood looks super fake, it's still pretty striking to see someone get shot and blood come out for a little kid. But aside from that, it really starts out more like these guys are just enjoying themselves and it's, there's kind of funny moments and this Richard Benjamin who plays Peter. I loved him. He's kind of got this like smile on his face the whole time and it was infectious and you see Dick Van Patten, who was in Eight is Enough after that. And he, I mean, for me, I think, oh, TV sitcom. And then um, when they get to the, uh, you hear the techs in the control room go like, all right, let's start that bar fight. And then there's this peppy <laughs> music. Woo! Right. Yeehaw! And somebody knocks someone over the head with a bottle and you hear uh, like a cuckoo sound or something <laughs> and so but the shift is gradual as things start going wrong and yule brenner throughout is pretty intimidating um with that focused stare of his but when he comes and says and uh, the third time and they're like oh come on not you again and then he kills john right in front of peter that's when it really i mean it, it someone had already been killed but our main characters didn't know that so i felt like it shifted into from comedy to horror and there's even the music really signifies this shift in tone. Here's some music from earlier in the movie. Just kind of walking down main street street and everything. And then here is right after, uh, John, uh, the gunslinger killed one of the two guys. It gets more menacing. Oh. Sir, we have no control over the robots at all. So I felt like it really shifted. And then, and then by the end, when the gunslinger has been chasing him around relentlessly and especially the part where he's hiding because the gunslinger sees with infrared, I guess. So he's hiding by that flame and he's standing right in front of him. And, but he doesn't know for sure if he's seeing a human there or not. Even now I was like, Holy shit, what's going to happen? You know, I was really, really gripped by that. So it, it, it just, uh, really grabbed me how, the shift in, from the beginning to the end is so extreme for me anyway. And then one last thing I'll say about that is I, I, I kept thinking, okay, wait, maybe I misremembered. Like they did show the gunslinger with his face off, uh, in the lab earlier, but I thought I remembered a scarier part of that. And that it was at the very end after he'd been doused with acid and burnt and he came back one last time and looked up and you could see his face was hollowed out. And even now I think because it touched something in me from childhood, 
I was just like, oh. <laughs> so yeah. I, I like the way, like, I, I feel like it was kind of brave of a show to almost switch genres. Uh, it was sort of gradual, but still by the, from the beginning to the end, it was a, con a big extreme. And it makes sense too, because the guests have that experience too. They think of it as going to be a fun, no consequence time. And it ends up being horrific and deadly for them. Uh, yeah, I really thought the same thing watching it again this time the other night. I had not really noticed before how much of a genre switch there is. Uh, and you're pointing out the, the comedic aspects of the first half of the movie. That's definitely true. Like Dick Patton is Dick Van Patten is comic yeah. relief. I mean, he like can't, he's trying to be a tough sheriff and he can't get the door open right. and stuff like that. And uh <laughs> I mean, I remember him from High Anxiety as well as Eight is Enough. He's hilarious. <laughs> is that Mel Brooks? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Take off on Hitchcock movies. Uh -huh. and But yeah, they play a lot of the early movie for comedy and incongruity. And, and also sci-fi. You think it's a sci-fi movie. Yes. And then about halfway through, it really switches to a classic horror movie mm -hmm. where you're being pursued by this, um, you know, unstoppable monster. And the whole thing shifts to tension. Survival and, mode. And fear. And there's not a lot of movies like that. Yeah. Like, I think movies today are, are maybe too scared to do that, you know? They follow the same template, more or less, especially big blockbuster movies. And so when a movie like this comes along, I could see some people going, something feels wrong about this, but it's just... It's not what we're used to, you know? I liked it. I thought it was great. Yeah, and if you think about a movie like Scream, um, which I, a movie, is a movie I love, it's horror mixed with comedy. Mm -hmm. um, they play a lot of it for laughs, but it's that way the whole way through the movie. Right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't switch. Yeah, I mean, it is it is still a brave thing to try because it might just fail. And, right. but it, it succeeded. And, and this is sort of reminding me, I don't know if you're watching WandaVision. Haven't seen it yet. It's interesting. I don't want to give away too much, but it's, uh, modeled after sitcoms and each episode is a different decade, but there's something going on underneath. So it really mixes up the genres in a way that if you heard it, like maybe you're hearing me now going, that probably won't work, but I think it's pretty great. <laughs> Very cool. Anyway. Number four. All right. Um, so my number four is Michael Crichton, who was the writer and director of this film. Honestly, I have to admit, I, I knew he was sort of a giant of the film and book industry, but never paid that much attention to the details around him. So in, in looking him up about uh, when we were going to talk about this movie, it, what an amazing guy. I mean... So he liked writing and he wanted to be a writer, but he also thought he was going to be a doctor. He got a medical degree from Harvard, hated medical school, and never ended up practicing. He pursued writing instead. But how's that for a throwaway? Oh, I got a medical degree from Harvard, but never really wanted to use it. I think of him as parallel with John Grisham, who I think he actually was a lawyer, but they decided, screw that, actual work, yeah. let me do this. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it's hard work, but it seems more fun. But so, I I mean, the I would say the best known thing he is known for is Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. which became a massive film franchise and huge cultural phenomenon that, like, everyone on Earth knows. 
And I think he wrote the novel, but not... Did he write the screenplay for that? Maybe he did. I don't know for sure. It was he at a, least wrote the novel that the movie was based on. I believe it was a collaboration with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, okay. But, um, and, and I think he did write the, the first screenplay. Not 100% sure. Yeah, I think he might have too, but I'm not sure. But so, okay, Jurassic Park, The Andromeda Strain, which was a huge best-selling novel and really good movie. We should podcast on that one sometime. Mm, I don't think I've fun. seen that one actually. I'm curious. Classic sci-fi, kind of in this same, mm-hmm. got a similar vibe, I would say, to Westworld. Scary, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And then, right. So there are those two. There's Westworld, which was sort of a cult movie, but has now become a cultural phenomenon because of the successful TV show. Um, creator of ER. I had right. no idea one of the most successful TV series of all time. And um, so in 1994, Michael Crichton at, at the same time had created the number one movie, Jurassic Park, ER television show <laughs> and best-selling book, which was called Disclosure. He had all three at the I same time. I remember that. That was a movie too. They made it with. Yeah. Somebody. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. Like, how hard is it to create one number one anything? Right. And he had all three at the same time. He's like the Elon Musk of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I wanted to read up on what gave him the idea for Westworld. And here's what he said. He said, I think I got the idea for Westworld because I was very interested in astronauts fascinated by the fact that they were being trained to be machines. Then I was also fascinated by the animated figures at Disneyland, the two tendencies toward making people as machine, as machine like as possible and machines as human as possible are creating a lot of confusion. And that's what suggested Westworld to me. Um, And he didn't like the term science fiction. He saw these more as fantasies and he thought that movies more than books or what would sort of inspire the imagination. Um, and then, as I say, I was kind of blown away by the fact that he created ER, which was this huge mm-hmm. TV series in the 90s mm-hmm. of a totally different kind of topic. But then finding out that he had a medical degree, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember back then I was keyed into him because i liked jurassic park and er and he came out with this movie congo i think in the 90s too that had uh bruce campbell right hamming it up and um yeah he really i think he i think he passed away right in like the 2000s or something in 2008 he had cancer so he only lived to be 66 Yeah, Um, which is too bad i'm sure he would have been still creating going yeah 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 and and so in in Westworld, and I'll talk about this in my number three. You know, I always thought about him as the author of Westworld and Andromeda Stream, but he directed Westworld. He right. was a, a director who directed several films as well. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, a lot of t- it's interesting because it f- seemed like he didn't do a lot of directing later on, and he wrote still writing those best selling novels, which is an interesting tra- trajectory to go down because I think this movie was well received. Yeah, and if you think about Westworld as we've talked about talking about the TV show, I mean, this it's like a whole realm of even though he didn't like the term science fiction. I mean, if you think about her and Ex Machina and 
you know, there's, there's a huge genre of this robot computer human dichotomy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that whole thing about what is science fiction and what is not, I know there are some people who are really specific about the definition of science fiction and I didn't, you know, we could look that up and whatever, but there are some people who are just very, very particular about what they will and won't call science fiction. I mean, I, I think this is definitely a fantasy for sure, but, uh, with my broad definition of science fiction, I would definitely say it was science fiction. Yeah. I think it's, it's both and touches on both. Yeah. Okay. My number four is about how things go progressively bad and why, why it happens because even though there is a shift right from the very beginning or very close to the beginning, anyway, you feel a sense that things aren't, aren't, aren't well. <laughs> and early on in the repair lab, there's malfunctioning robots and the technicians report on what went wrong. One kept falling over one robot. One had central malfunction and he goes another one. So that sounds more serious. Right. And he, the guy's mentioning how, malfunctions are standard but usually minor until about six weeks ago when roman world had a rise in breakdown rate and we saw a disproportionate rise in central as opposed to peripheral breakdowns despite our corrections the breakdown rate continued to climb then medieval world began to have trouble now we're seeing more west world breakdowns so that was before anything super bad even happened but but they're just letting us know i guess that not all is well. Then the guns, I think it was after that, that the gunslinger broke into John's room and his buddy, Peter hears him outside and busts in and shoots him. I mean, also with hindsight, I would guess that that wasn't part of any story plan or anything. I think he was going there for revenge. Maybe. Yeah. It starts to show that he has memory. Yeah. Like revenge feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's the whole reason why he was so intent on killing um, Peter at the end, because Peter killed him twice. Right. But uh, the first real, like, for sure wrong thing I think that we see is when the rattlesnake bites John. Right. But it's not supposed to, and he's bleeding and everything. And the snake looked like it's lined with tinfoil, which I thought was funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then this pretty maiden sex bot, Daphne, refuses this slimy guy's affections. Right. <laughs> my lord, Daphne. My lord, Daphne. My lord, snap, splat. <laughs> <laughs> Which was played for comedy, but it's actually pretty disturbing. Um, <laughs> right, but it's definitely a sign that things are going off the rails. Yeah, yeah. Then then uh, the Black Knight kills that guy, who's also a knight, stabs him. So it's like, okay, well that obviously this is all fucked and, but they're continually trying to talk themselves into keeping it open, at least for the guests who are still here. And then they shut down the power, but they can't, uh, the techs, but then they can't turn it back on and they're locked in. And after that, and all, I think in all three worlds, all the robots just start murdering everyone. Whoops. And the gunslinger kills John and starts chasing Peter around. So I mean, I probably might've missed a couple of things in there, but, um, it went downhill pretty quickly. And then I was trying to think why it happened because I don't think it's absolutely clearly 100% stated, but there's some pretty big hints. One of the Delos scientists 
mentioned when he mentioned these breakdowns, he said there's a clear pattern here which suggests an analogy to an infectious disease process spreading from one area to the next. Uh, the other guy's like, I, I find it hard to believe in a disease of machinery, but he answers, but we aren't dealing with ordinary machines here. These are highly complicated pieces of equipment. Some cases they've been designed by other computers. We don't know exactly how they work. So I think that was in HBO, the HBO version too. Oh, we don't really it, know how they work. It definitely <laughs> was. You know, there they were talking more about software. Yeah. Where back in the seventies, it's still a little bit more hardware but definitely Mechanical. that concept of we they design themselves right but when you yeah. do think of this in terms of software and you're probably right who knows if michael Crichton even had that in mind but these descriptions sound a lot like modern computer viruses and i read right. even that um the term computer virus some people think it originated here in this movie westworld and he was a computer expert himself okay right and um the thing about that they sometimes have been designed by other computers. That's a pretty good description of machine learning, which is when computer algorithms improve automatically through experience. So they're given a lot of data. That's how Tesla cars are supposed to learn how to um, drive around by themselves. And they continually improve because they're taking all the data that comes through the cameras of people's cars who have opted in to allow that. And then use the computer uses that to rewrite its own software. It's also in like photo, um, editing apps where a photo can a phone can correctly uh, figure out where someone's face is and then make the background behind the face blurry but not the face itself and so um just taking those thing concepts into consideration it seems like it's probably that these robots are so complicated that they and they sort of train themselves that they at least some of them got tired of being treated so badly of being killed and raped continually, just like the ones in the HBO show. And they decided to fight back. And then somehow that was transferred to the other robots in this sort of virus like manner. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. And it, that was something I think the other times I've watched this movie, I completely missed that. They talk about it being a virus spreading from one park to another. Mm hmm. Um, like somehow it, it went through all the robots and just another note about, um, that sort of how they build the things going wrong and the foreboding of what's about to go wrong mm -hmm. at the very beginning, like while the guests are coming into the park, there's this recording playing that says nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong which has to be a terrible sign. Like if you need a, a recording saying nothing can go wrong, yeah. then something can go wrong. Yeah. It's all going to go to hell. Yeah. Um, I, a couple others that I thought um, uh, going along with exactly with your theme. One is the, the very first gunfight in the bar. It takes him four shots to kill the gunslinger. Like he shoots him in the chest yeah. and it doesn't even slow him down really. Right. Um, and that's kind of like what, you know, whoa, like, Oh, wait a minute. Let me try one more time. Like, yeah. This, <laughs> this thing's dangerous. And then um, he's having sex with the, the prostabot, the prostitute robot mm -hmm. and her eyes open up. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was kind of just like, but he doesn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. Just and I mean, you, that could just mean, well, she only needs to pretend when they can notice, but still right. it was sort of like, oh, this doesn't look like a pleasant experience. 
It was a little disturbing. Yeah. And then and then I do think that the um the warning is there when the snake attacks John, but the actual moment where the gunslinger kills him, there's like that moment of shock and horror where like the line has been crossed mm -hmm. and we're sort of we're we're out of control. And I remember the TV show did that very well too. Mm -hmm. And it's effective, even though we did already see the knight in medieval world stab the other guy, because these two guys, John and Peter are the main characters. So they're kind of the lens with which we view most of this movie, I feel like, you right. know? And so then to have one of them killed right in front of the other one who doesn't really know that things have gone wrong yet. It's yeah, that for me was the moment where the movie was just full on. Okay. Now we're, now I'm a horror movie. Right. <laughs> Especially yeah, because the killer was right there and Peter had to run away from him. Yeah. The build, the sequence of the build to that moment is, is well done. Mm -hmm. All right. My number three is just a few things about the cast. We had Yul Brenner as the gunslinger and I think probably his performance actually is crucial to this movie. He's so menacing and the way he moves so deliberately and is still and focused and even kind of, uh, he takes glee in the idea that people are scared of him. He just really handled that well without having to do much. And I think if, um, you'd had another actor in there who didn't nail that role, maybe this movie wouldn't have been so popular. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think Yul Brenner completely made the movie <laughs> and it would not have been the same with anyone else. I know he's what scared me. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, it wasn't the story. It was him. Right. And it was kind of cool. Actually, the fact that it was a bit comedic at the beginning and right. um, the John character, I mean, Peter, he's kind of looking around wide eyed and stuff that really contrasts with, Yul Brenner's portrayal of this. I mean, he's basically the Terminator. So that contrast really made it work well too. He's the Terminator before the Terminator. <laughs> and um, a couple things I noticed. One is that, that it's just a very small special effect, but the glint in his eyes. It looks like they're steel. Yeah. His pupils. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty effective. And, um, and he had this way of walking in the movie like somehow walking like a robot. He kind of walks only with his legs. Like his upper body is very and still. glides. Yeah. Yeah. But it looks unnatural mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. a way. And then he's got a great voice and a great theme, theme sound, you know, that little shuddery sound it's effect. Good. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, it, I think it makes the whole movie. Yeah. And so we had Richard Benjamin as Peter and, I already mentioned I liked his continually in wonderment until he had to survive and kind of be the hero of the movie, which was cool to put that guy in that spot. We had James Brolin, who is uh, very seventies. Yeah, and I know I saw him on Hotel. I I know he's been in a ton of movies. I don't know if I've seen him in much, but his son is Josh Brolin, who's Thanos. He's great <laughs> yeah he's great too yeah and w and all those movies uh goonies uh dick van patten we talked about he seemed like he was formerly a kind of pudgy nerdy kid who's now getting to play tough we had uh daphne who was played by a playboy playmate playboy is may 1967 playmate of the month and randall 
And IMDb says the guy who played the knight that Daphne refused, the guest, he's Norman Bartold. He was 45 years old at the time. I'm like, wow, that's like five years younger than me. And he looks so old. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he does. People looked older back then. And then the last one I wanted to mention is Majel Barrett, who plays the madam. Never realized that until last <laughs> right. night looking at I'm like, she looks familiar. And I looked her up. Oh, yeah. She's only got like two lines. But um, but yeah, how about that? The yeah. voice of the computer in Star Trek. In and Star Trek. And Deanna Troy's mother in Next Generation. Yeah. And of and, course. And the nurse in the original Star Trek. And Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's wife. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Any other ones I missed that I should have talked about? Nope, I don't think nope. so. Yeah. It's a pretty simple movie, which I like sometimes. Yeah, it's not a big cast. I mean, there's not that many people in it. Okay, number two. Uh, okay. So uh, just one more thing before we leave the um, the gunslinger. One of the things I loved with him and his character was that they, while... Peter is running away. He runs across this like repairman out in the desert who's trying to repair a flat tire on his golf cart, mm -hmm. um, which is another concept that get, got updated later in the TV show. Yeah, way more um, effectively yeah. with those ATVs. Yeah, but he goofy little golf cart. It's this little speech about the <laughs> gunslinger where he's like, "Must be a model four hundred four, maybe a four hundred six. Beautiful machine. Whatever you do, he's always one jump ahead of you. You haven't got a chance." <laughs> it just cracked me up yeah. i mean um and seeing him in that white jacket saying that shit i was yeah. like i bet you he's gonna have some red on that real soon <laughs> and it was like yeah 30 seconds later uh -huh. but the um I, I would say the gunslinger is the model for the terminator certainly but yes. also there's a lot of the predator in the gunslinger um kind that of, kind whole of pixelated color. view is reminiscent of predator yeah but and just a hunter being a hunter and a little bit of the same concept, like he's hunting Schwarzenegger in the latter half of Predator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that pixelated view, by the way, it seemed a little silly to me because it seemed to like, wow, they their vision is that shitty. That makes him seem really ineffective. But it was central to the plot, so they had to have it. Okay, so this actually is my number two. Okay. And again, really didn't, certainly didn't know this when first seeing the movie. Uh, this really is a historic film because this is the first movie with CGI, computer-generated imagery. And the computer-generated imagery is the robot's perspective. Mm. It's the pixelated view. Cool. Um, so the first movie to use computer-generated images to create a special effect and I mean, this is only a few years before Star Wars and this all becomes very, you know, George Lucas takes it to another level and then yeah. it takes off. It makes everyone else look bad. Right. Um, exactly. <laughs> but um, so the director of photography, Gene Polito, said they set out to create, how are we going to make the gunslinger's vision look different, like a robot? And the the dp said we they ended up having richard benjamin made up completely in white uh to be able to shoot this and then they were going to process the imagery through computers so like white makeup a white western wardrobe 
white gloves, white hairspray looked like as though he had fallen into a barrel of flour. Um, but that's the contrast they needed to make this work in that sequence. And then this was, this was Crichton's big idea. He was into computers and, you know, he had this concept, but he couldn't get anyone to do it, like to process uh, the image through a computer and then translate it to film. He talked to all these different people and they like, they're like, what, what are you talking about? Finally, Jet Propulsion Laboratory offered, they understood it and they were like, okay, we'll do it for you. But they offered to do it for $200,000 and it was going to take nine months. And the whole film only cost a million dollars. It really was a low budget film. Mm -hmm. Basically in today's dollars, one episode of the Westworld TV show was equal to like the budget for this whole movie. Oh. Um, finally they found this guy, John Whitney Jr. And he agreed to do it for 20 grand and it took him four months. And if you add up all the pixelated effect in the movie, it's only about two minutes of film. Hmm. And they, they also, by the way, only had about 75 grand for set construction, which is like nothing. Mm -hmm. So all these sets look so stark and simple. Right. And they ended up looking really cool, but it's, the reason is they didn't have any. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the things that you could really see how they brought forward and modernized for the HBO series, which surprised me. I didn't realize that was taken from the, the movie instead of stark bare white walls. It's like glass, but it's similar in the lab space. You can see how it evolved into what came in the HBO series and everything. Yeah. And there's a whole homage in the, early in the HBO series. I don't remember exactly which episode, but where there's sort of a chase through these stark hallways and you see a Yul Brenner like gunslinger yeah. robot and they use the sound effect and, and all that stuff. But I mean, first CGI in a movie that's, that's historic. Yeah. So um, I think that takes this movie kind of to a different level. And that's probably another thing that, in its time had a much different impact. Like I just said, Oh, that shitty pixelated view is what they had. And I mean, there is a practical um, aspect to what I'm saying. Like, well, if he can't see very well, how effective are they at all the things they need to do in the park? So maybe there's some suspension of disbelief there, but also maybe there's a little bit of, wow, pixelation is crappy. But back then it was like, Whoa, what am I seeing here? You know? <laughs> yeah. And remember also they make a point of his hearing being enhanced mm -hmm. so you get the idea that a lot of what they do maybe is from sound and infrared too which right uh peter was able to use that flame as camouflage basically i did think it was funny that um the technician he was like how can i beat this thing and the technician was like i don't know maybe acid in the vision system and then he's walking through the lab and it's like hey five jars of acid what do you know <laughs> like they're just randomly sitting on a table there Got to have some breaks occasionally. Yeah. Your way. <laughs> okay. Minor two is some behind the scenes stuff. Um, we talked a bit about Michael Crichton already. I, I had thought that this was also based on a novel by him, but no, it's an original screenplay. And um, Wikipedia said that after making the movie, Crichton took a year off. Quote, I was intensely fatigued by Westworld. I was pleased, but intimidated by the audience reaction the laughs are in the wrong places. There was extreme tension where I hadn't planned it. I felt the reaction and maybe the picture was out of control. 
He believed the film had been misunderstood as a warning of the dangers of technology. Quote, everyone remembers the scene in Westworld where Yul Brynner is a robot that runs amok, but there is a very specific scene where people discuss whether or not to shut down the resort. I think the movie was as much about that decision as anything. They just didn't really think it was really going to happen. So I think his real intention was to warn against corporate greed, which is something they definitely followed up with in the HBO series, making it as much about like the folly of man as it is about technology. And the sequel, Future World, which is a much less good movie, Mm -hmm. but is explicitly about that. About that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So they took the reins on, like, that's what the HBO show, I I mean, my number one is going to be about comparisons to the HBO series, but... um, As is mine. As is yours. But, um, I, you know, they really took some things that were just touched on here and very much deepened and expanded them in, in really smart ways, I think. This Agreed. this watching this makes me miss the HBO sh- series and appreciate it more, which I'm glad to be feeling that way <laughs> yep. about it. Agreed. It, it's let's see, you know, at the end when the gunslinger was really ch- hunting down Peter, I'm like, wow, this really seems like the Terminator. It has a Terminator vibe. I bet James Cameron was a fan of Westworld, so I looked it up and found this article saying that he's a huge fan of Westworld that the portrayal of the robots in the Terminator, I mean, in Westworld inspired his depiction of robots or cyborgs in the Terminator films. In fact, he had Arnold Schwarzenegger watch Westworld before filming the Terminator, told him to model his performance on Yul Brenner, his emotionless detachment and laser like focus on whatever task he was doing. So I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And now as we're talking about it, I'm talking about it with you, the whole thing about model 404, that's like the model, T 800 or whatever he was cyberdyne systems model one (laughs) zero one and the robot vision they use that too so and even the music which i'm gonna play that fluttery thing later but maybe he was inspired by that because the whole terminator is kind of similar in its vibe anyway to that i mean the terminator itself another groundbreaking iconic movie yeah and uh another and a pretty low budget movie mm-hmm. unlike the sequels uh that followed but the more you're talking about it the more i'm like you know he kind of just copied it from west i know i know <laughs> but it's so good though i mean yeah yeah he just copied it and amped it up and skipped right to the scary part no comedy part in the beginning right although they they play terminator for comedy a few times they do some a little bit yeah but that movie scared me as a kid too yeah which one do you like better now after all this time has passed um i I mean i have a lot of affection for westworld but i mean no i'm sorry i'm talking about the first two terminator movies oh gotcha terminator movies um I mean the Terminator 2 is much more sophisticated movie than Terminator 1 much better special effects um higher budget all that stuff but I I think Terminator the first one for as cheesy as some of the effects are and as limited as it is in certain ways is more authentic I still love the first one the best I think I do too I'd have to go back and watch but it's just more powerful and focused. I mean, two yeah. is great, but um, I feel the it, same. Two way. is great. They're both great. I feel pretty similarly about the alien movies, aliens, 
was great and bigger and you know more actiony just like terminator 2 was but the first one was just so focused and scary and tense yeah i i can't share that feeling for the the alien movies which i also love uh only the first two the rest of them are terrible <laughs> but um covenant was okay but um i saw the second one first so I loved Aliens. It, it like Westworld scared the shit out of me. But so by the time I saw the original Alien, I knew what it was. Yeah. Already. So I lost. So that might have taken suspense. away some of the impact. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a great movie. It is. I mean, I'm just realizing so I saw Westworld on TV, it scared me. The first movie I ever saw in the theater was Jaws, which scared the crap out of me at oh, six that, years old. Yeah. I saw Alien at the drive in. My mother, man. What was she thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but now I love all this stuff. It so explains guess, a lot. Yes, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for life, but yeah, it's good. Wouldn't want it any other way. Okay. What is your, Oh, one more thing about, um, behind the scenes. Um, actually just a couple quick ones. Arnold Schwarzenegger was in talks to star in a remake of Westworld in 2007 before the deal fell apart. I'm kind of glad he did. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Maybe it would have been good. Yeah. It just uh, would have been Terminator again. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Quentin Tarantino almost did a remake, which could have been interesting. Maybe they would, that would have Tarantino that one up too much. And last Yul Brynner wore the same outfit in Westworld as he did in the Magnificent seven. So they had to really like control the budgets back then, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, this is our, we'll call it a combined number one because sure, yeah. we both did the same thing. But mm-hmm. um, parallels and connections to the, the TV series. So TV show, right, it's more than 40 years later. It's incomparably more sophisticated, um, a much higher budget. You know, as we said, basically it's the budget, they had the budget per episode that, Michael Crichton did for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Lavishly produced. Yeah. But I would say that they really stuck pretty faithfully to the themes. They very much expanded them. It's more complex. But you realize how much is in the movie that basically season one of the TV show is the movie expanded to five times the length. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, all those themes hold up. Uh, the characters I think are interesting because there's some parallels, but they sort of took some in a different direction. I mean, really the, um, the gunslinger who equals the man in black, old William and Richard Benjamin, who is essentially young William is the same character in Westworld, the TV show. But it's like the two main characters in the movie became in the show the same person. The <laughs> Antagonist. I I mean, I also thought the gunslinger, a.k.a. Yul Brenner, was a lot of Dolores, too. Just the main host slash robot that wants revenge. Yeah, and that, I agree. I think that crosses over because, I mean, Dolores in the movie Westworld is essentially Daphne like a sex bot. Yeah. That's what she starts out as. Right. And then she sort she of becomes Yul Brynner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Exactly. There, there's a moment in, um, 
at the very beginning of Westworld, the movie in the TV reporter scene where he's interviewing somebody that was in, I guess, medieval world. And the guy says, I married a beautiful princess. And uh, the reporter says, is that something you always dreamed of doing? And I immediately thought of Dolores. <laughs> like, uh, that may not turn out so well for you. Or, or you, you're lucky you got out of the park. But but they also used some of those, the sayings that are like the marketing slogans from the movie. Boy, have we got a vacation for you. And Delos, the vacation of the future today. And how those sort of get perverted uh, in the TV show. I mean, I was trying to find Delos slogans from the TV show. I, I only found leave your world behind, live without limits, which is similar. Right. I like, boy, have we got a vacation for you. Boy, have <laughs> we got a vacation for you, for you, for you. <laughs> um, so Miss Carrie, the Majel Barrett, the madam, uh, turns into Maeve in the TV show. And I think that was one of the most successful adaptations where they – took that bit character and blew it up into something that was very major important. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say really season one of Westworld basically equals the movie. And what you get is more of the reasoning and backstory and complication behind it. The one thing that doesn't really exist in the movie is Dr. Robert Ford. Yeah. There's one scientist who seems to know more than the others, but yeah. And, and, the character name is cheap Su- supervisor in the film. Okay. And that's the closest thing, but yeah. um, really you don't get the idea that he's the creator, No, right? That there's a corporate creator somewhere. He's just the one operating it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no real Ford character and right. for that character added so much to the HBO series. So that was a good uh, addition that HBO did that right. Jonathan Nolan, Lisa Joy did. Okay, um, some practical similarities right from the start. We learn about medieval world, Roman world, and Westworld, the three parks. On the show, we have Westworld, Shogun world, War world, the Raj, which is the Indian colonization, imperialistic world. Uh, There's like a fantasy version of medieval Europe, which some people think is fantasy world, but I don't think that's been confirmed. We know it's fantasy because we saw the Game of Thrones dragons with Benioff and Weiss repairing them. (laughs) Remind me, do we get any of the other worlds in season one of Westworld? I don't think we do. Or is that start only? uh, I think maybe we saw some Shogun World stuff in the last episode. Gotcha. Oh, that's right. That's right. In the lab. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then there's also some unnamed park that's like an american suburb for hire that we saw in the most recent season so five or six parks instead of three uh cost one thousand dollars a day instead of forty thousand dollars a day uh the the scene after the bank robbery remember they heard a lot of gunfire outside and they decided to go upstairs with their escorts instead um then they go out and they see dead bodies all over the road that look just like the aftermath of when Dolores killed everyone. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but it reminded me of it. Yeah. I think there's an amazing number of scenes that Westworld, the TV show replicated. Yeah. Um, at least in some point that definitely, I had the same impression mm-hmm. from that. Um, the bank robbery 
is like the whole robbery with Hector, I think. Yeah. Even though we never get to see it in the movie, but we know it's going on. Yeah. And then to me, like the gunslinger pursuing him out into the wild was like that whole thing from season one of Westworld where young William and Dolores and they were out in the wild. And remember there was, there was a storyline like with the sheriff and then it all starts to go wrong. And, um, a, a lot of the first season of Westworld sort of entails that whole mm-hmm. scene. Just fleshing it out, so to speak. Yeah. And then there's some barroom parallels. There's some um, bordello parallels. There's a lot of parallel scenes. And just seeing all the techs in their lab coats and like piling up bodies and opening and all in this big room where there's different tables for each one. They kind of replicated that. And it's really, I mean, when I saw that in the show, it just seemed so strange. Like how did they come to this design? And now watching the movie, I'm like, Oh, now I know how. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the dumb golf carts got replaced. That was good with ATVs because that harsh terrain, I didn't really believe that golf cart would be going very far. No. Well, or you could understand why he had a flat tire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they have a repair period at night. I mean, one thing I was wondering, they bring uh, vehicles out at night to clean up all the bodies and stuff. And it seems like in the show, wouldn't they wait to do that until like the guests would all go home and there was a period in between before the new guests would come in? Or how did they do that? Because you would think that in a world like this, you'd have people out at night having adventures and stuff. Yeah. I wondered that too. That was a little suspension of disbelief. They just assume all the guests are asleep or maybe they figure, Hey, if they see it, they see no big deal. Yeah. 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 Uh, HBO, the HBO show didn't have a thing where you can tell a robot by its hands, which I think was smart to get rid of because you don't want an easy way to be able to tell who's real and who's not. Yeah. I mean, and I thought that was a little silly. Yeah. Like they could have these robots that are perfect in every other way, but the hands look obviously fake. They just can't figure it out. (laughs) Just kind of (laughs) silly. We talked a lot about the look, but the robots insides look more like the insides of the old mechanical models on the TV show, which I think was on purpose where they were, that was sort of an homage to these ones, but the newer ones have these whole three, three D printed organic like structure. Um, the music now I played some of the, um, like more happy go lucky music. I feel like maybe they took some cues from that to make the music of, uh, of the HBO series, Raman Jawadi. But here it is again, just a little piece. And here's, um, the sweet water. Actually, maybe I picked the wrong piece of music there. I I think those are fairly parallel. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And then it's kind of plucky, I guess. But the second one is a little darker, maybe, or a little more nuanced. Totally. It's a little more foreboding. Yeah. Movie version. And then later, though, in... um, the movie, the 73 movie, there's some scary music that I feel like is, is another version of this. The piano. 
I feel like, I don't know. They just decided to use piano, but <laughs> I think I, I guessing that Raman Jawadi listened to all this music and let it inspire him in making the HBO music. Yeah. And I, I mean, Joy and Nolan, they had a lot of love. You can tell for the original mm-hmm. movie. So I think it, it did infuse everything they did in the TV show to bring some of those elements into it, which is good. Like I said, this, this watching this just makes me appreciate the HBO show even more. I feel like I want to go back and watch season one now. Again, I know after watching the movie again. <laughs> uh, okay. And then there's the music that you and I have both been talking about. That's like the uh, gunslinger slash Yulebrenner theme music. Which is just so effective because it's so weird. It's like nothing we've heard before. I mean, think about almost any TV show or movie you love. The music is such a big part of it. Yes. Lost always comes to mind. Yeah. Anything that works well usually had some pretty effective music behind it. Yeah. And and um, often it's unique, you know, because if it's just generic, then it's not really going to get you. And so, as you mentioned, they had a scene in like an homage to that in the HBO Westworld. It showed Yul Brenner in the background, like deactivated yeah, or something. Yeah, they, um, I have to go back and watch that now. I didn't have time to do it before yeah. this, but somehow, um, there is a suspenseful scene that takes place in the tunnels, like where the labs are, and they use that sound effect. And there is a Yul Brenner looking model host. Right. It is standing, standing in one of the rooms. And here's the music they played during that on the new HBO show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just a direct homage, yeah. a, a lift. So maybe a little more in the background, but not much. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's see the characters. When we first saw Peter and John on the like transport heading over, I of course thought of young William and Logan. Right. And they're kind of similar in that like Logan, John has been to the park before and he's sort of introducing this other guy, Peter or young William to the park. Yeah. And and I think um, John and Logan are both hedonists that have a cynical approach to being in this park. Yeah, but John seemed a little less, um, I don't know, like a creep to me than Logan does. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. It's a simpler character. Like, we never really get to know him at all. Yeah, and both of these characters are pretty thinly drawn compared to the HBO show. Very much so. We get a little with Peter. Oh, he's divorced and this Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Uh, And and the themes, too. I mean, you mentioned themes. leaving your troubles behind in this fantasy world is, is like the big theme, but the theme about the nature of reality and what makes a conscious being and whether what matters and doesn't matter when you're considering, you know, what is real and uh, just a quick interaction with the first female, uh, well, this woman that comes up and introduces them to the park. Peter says, was she a, and John's like, probably, in the TV show, that's Tallulah Riley coming on to young William. Right. And if you can't if tell, you... does it matter? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then uh, later, um, 
after Peter breaks out of jail and kills the sheriff and he's all excited about it, he goes, you know what? I almost believe all this. Well, why shouldn't you believe it? It's as real as anything else. Yep, I reckon. But they really don't go into it that deeply, though. You know, it's not really about it's not so much about the nature of what is real and and what matters. I mean, another thing that's really linked to that is that's a theme in, in the HBO show is whether you should or, or just the perspective of these robots and what they're going through and whether you need to sympathize with them. And I wonder, like when you people are watching through watching this movie back in 1973, was it their reaction to sympathize with these robots? Because now from the perspective of having watched Westworld, it's really natural to think, oh yeah, I understand why they rose up. I guess when you watch the movie the first time, do you think you still had that reaction too? Because they're kind of presented as the antagonists here, I would say. I don't think so. I, I don't think that um, complexity and sympathy for the robots is really present in the movie. Yeah. It, it, it's more two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. I think that was brilliantly created for the in the show. show. Yeah, this sort of moral ambiguity and, you know, which side should you be on? And um, the humans are kind of assholes and the yeah uh, the hosts are more sympathetic. We don't see things from the perspective of the robots at all in this movie. And we don't see how, like, how this, what the techs are considering a virus that spread through the parks was that just some kind of a software thing or did they actually talk to each other? Or we don't see anything like that because I think the intention is not for us to take on their perspective, but still I, I wouldn't be surprised if some people watching this were like, well, yeah, I kind of don't blame them because they're just being killed every day, <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, that was definitely something that was way, way, way more present in the HBO show and may not have been present at all in the original movie. Um, I guess that's about all I had. Do you have any notes or anything else? Um, just two small notes. We, we've talked about most of them. Um, one is, as much as I love the movie, there are some things you just have to forgive and let pass by. We call that Department of Suspension and Disbelief. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the um, the whole storyline of, like, there's a power failure that seals the doors, and they're all going to suffocate. And they all actually seem to suffocate in, like, an hour. And just it, sitting it, at their desks. It's like, just oh, not, just, we'll just sit here. Yeah, one guy is trying to figure out how to open the door and the rest of them just Meanwhile, uh, the main character finds a manhole that leads down there. Well, maybe they should have went out that manhole. Yeah. It, so that whole thing is is pretty ridiculous. You have yeah. to just forgive it. Yep. Um, the other one is, and I read this in reading about the movie, and and I actually remember this. So early prints of the movie. So I remember seeing this in the version of the movie I had seen years past. Mm-hmm. Early prints of the movie contain a scene in medieval world where a guest is tortured on a rack by the robots. And that scene was later deleted um, from the television and video versions. And the version I saw on HBO Max did not have that scene. Me neither. It's just like a 20 second shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish they hadn't cut it out because I think it's really important. It was, it, it really made an impression on me. I remember when I saw the movie oh, as yeah. a kid, because it makes explicit that the robots are like getting revenge on the humans for all the mistreatment. 
And when you take that out, it just, the violence becomes a lot more random. It's mm. like they just went crazy. But with that scene in there, it was much more explicit that like they have feelings towards the humans yeah. and they're getting revenge. And I, I, do, I wish they hadn't taken that out. I don't know why they did. Yeah. I, if I had a guess, I would guess they just thought it was too much. Yeah. Too violent. Yeah. Or too disturbing or whatever. But I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think probably, you know, when I was watching it, I was thinking, well, I think the gunslinger is going after the, this guy in particular because he killed him, but it's not explicit. And yeah, that, that scene would be a lot more powerful. I, I read there were other scenes too, in at least one TV showing, but I can't, I didn't write down what they were, but there are other deleted scenes too. It seemed shorter and a little bit less than I remembered this version. And to me, the worst, almost the worst thing in the history of TV and movies is sanitizing them for television. Yeah. So, I mean, you have pan and scan, but then you have scenes cut out. You have swear words cut out, which ruins a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's nothing good about it. Nope. Yeah. Just don't, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and if you are going to do it, then at least make it known and then make the movie available in its full format elsewhere. Yeah. And it's great that most of the ways we watch things now, streaming services, HBO, whatever it may be, don't do that anymore. They give you the film as it was theatrically released. Yep. All right. A couple other things like that. I already mentioned, I thought the pixelated view made him seem less formidable, but it was integral to the plot. So I understand why they had it in there. Uh, one thing, though, they had said that they had replaced the gunslinger's visual cortex with infrared units just to sort of explain the whole thing about him camouflaging himself with flame at the end because the, he would blend in with the heat. But then I thought, OK, so then when the gunslinger's walking down the hall and Peter decides to lay on the table and pretend to be one of the robots, he would see a big red blob right there. Department of Suspension of Disbelief. <laughs> yeah. It was a cool scene, though, when he turned yeah. and threw the acid in his face. Yeah. The um, acid that was fortuitously happened to be yeah. sitting there in the lab. Yeah. Uh, and then when the lady robot was strapped to the torture device and Peter took her out and gave her some water and it shorted her out, my first thought was maybe he should have just thrown water in the gunslinger's face. Yeah, a couple of things about that. One is there's a lot of moments in that movie, in this movie, where you're like, double tap, like, <laughs> yeah, like that's finish him yeah. off while you got the chance. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that actually is an inconsistency in the movie because earlier in the movie, there is a robot that drinks whiskey. Mm -hmm. uh, but later in the movie, this water apparently is like deadly poison. Maybe, yeah, uh, certain robots are just outfitted with for certain activities fair enough <laughs> <laughs> she's for being tortured i guess yeah um which is not funny uh so it... well well so this was no but i'm glad you brought it up because this was something that made less sense when they took out the guest being tortured on the rack mm -hmm. because you see that earlier and then you have Right. And, and it's believable that it's a human. Right. Because as soon as he went up to her, I thought, well, how does he know she's not a robot? Right. But if you had had that scene that you were talking about, then maybe you'd it kind of all makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Good point. 
Um, no, I guess that's it. We talked about the other one. I mean, the sequel, Future World, you, you mentioned that it wasn't very good. But I am curious if you remember how after something like this happened at one of their parks in the sequel, would they justify reopening the park? Do you remember? I don't remember that. I do remember the plot, which was that basically they're replacing, um, you know, political figures with copies. Uh-huh. And uh, which kind of became the uh, Dolores method in season three. Of it did. But I was kind of hoping they would actually get involved in politics in season three instead of yeah. like tech titans and stuff like that i guess it's it, similar if you remember another Crichton franchise jurassic park like in in jurassic world they don't even deal with it they're just like ah, we we started over yeah. <laughs> it's fine yeah <laughs> all right awesome we will take a little break there's more to come stay with us Okay, we're back. It's time for a little bit of news. Not much news. I looked to see if there was any news on Westworld Season 4, but there isn't any. There's been no indication of where they are in the process of making that or when it's going to come out. If it follows the pattern of the show so far, then it will be out sometime in 2022 because I think each season has been like a year and a half, two years apart. But um, with COVID. Yeah, I got to think they might have lost a year of production. Yeah. Maybe so. Uh, and then Golden Globe nominations came out. The Mandalorian was nominated for Best Television Drama alongside The Crown, Lovecraft Country, Ozark, and Ratched. That's The Mandalorian's only nomination. You know, I mentioned that because we covered Mandalorian on this podcast. The Crown got five other nominations, so I wouldn't be surprised if The Crown wins. I, I kind of doubt The Mandalorian will win, but... Either way, I think it's really cool that it was nominated because I think it's a really great show. And I have to say, apologies, I'm the only guy in America that has not seen The Mandalorian yet. (laughs) So, um, but heard it recommended by so many people. The Crown was pretty darn good. I gotta watch that. I haven't seen it. Yeah. You haven't seen any of it? Nope. I mean, I think it... I'm curious. Yeah, whether you're, I don't know if you'll be interested in the subject matter, but in terms of the quality of a show, like just the writing, the acting, the shooting, it is off the charts. I'm kind of interested. Yeah, I'm interested. It's basically the progression of British royalty over many years. It's really Queen Elizabeth's okay. story and yeah. and family. And um, the first two seasons are the young Elizabeth and uh, and her family, and then she's older in the last two seasons and they, they change the whole cast Mm -hmm. Um, and both casts are amazing. Like the young cast was incredible and the, the older cast was incredible. Um, Matt Smith is in it. uh, Yeah. It was earlier two season and he's amazing. Yeah. I was glad to hear him get in something that's successful because I think he's great. And he ends, he was in a Terminator movie that apparently was crap. I didn't bother watching it, but, um, I want to see him succeed. Nor did I, but he was very different in the crown than he was in doctor who. And you, you're like, Oh wow. He can actually act like as a, <laughs> as a regular actor. <laughs> right. Right. 
Yeah, that's when you know for sure when you see them play something different. Like Tim Oliphant, he's great. I don't know if he can act. Always plays the same character. But right. I like the character. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the Corona is top notch. It's cool. very, very good. All right, let's get into some listener feedback. Okay, Alicia Stout says, just watched it a week or so ago. I had never seen it before. I thought it was great for being an older movie. Still holds up and kept me intrigued and on the edge of my seat. The man in black was super scary. The one thing that cracked me up was the computers in the control room. So old school and just awkward. James Brolin was so young and handsome. Fun fact, my parents went to college with him. (laughs) That is a fun fact. Nice. Yeah, he looks so much like his son. David SK says, I just watched Westworld this week after hearing you're covering it. I wish they would have left out Roman and medieval worlds as I don't feel they brought much of anything to the story. I like the gunslinger. I mean, one thing I liked about Roman world is when they first presented it, it seemed like the most decadent, you know, and the guy, whoever they were telling about it just like raises eyebrow. Ooh, that sounds like fun. And it, it was, was that same old looking guy. Yeah. The sleazy guy. Yeah. Who was there <laughs> with his wife? Was like, oh God. Yeah. Like, but anyway, on. and then the other prominent scene, cause that scene was like, you just thought it was going to break out to an orgy as soon as the camera cut. And then the other prominent scene is just, mass murder death <laughs> yeah we don't get much of roman world no. uh, in the movie i i thought it did have value that um that they had the other worlds because it enabled like we're crossing boundaries throughout this movie mm-hmm. like we cross the safety boundaries and then yeah. it kind of enabled the gunslinger to chase him through multiple worlds right which just reemphasizes the point that it's all gone off the rails at right. this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, David continues. I like the gunslinger, especially in the bar scene when the guys, I think it was John and Peter first meet him. James Brolin, I found to be quite engaging. I felt like the last 20 minutes dragged as it was basically Peter fleeing from the gunslinger and a slow march of the gunslinger hunting him. I really dug the gunslinger vision, especially seeing the heat of Peter's footsteps. Not a bad film, probably pretty great for its time, but it can't hold a candle to the TV show. Then again, the first season had 10 hours to build an intricate story compared with 90 minutes for the movie. Agreed. Fair enough. Yep. Jonathan Buckle says, fun fact, it was $1,000 in 1973 to go to Westworld, which according to the internet is equivalent in purchasing power to about (laughs) $5,866.53 today, which is... uh, Forty-one thousand forty-one dollars for a week of murder and mayhem. Yeah, which is a good deal compared to the HBO series where it was forty thousand dollars a day. But that's also some indeterminate time in the future, so maybe it all evens out. So yeah, could be the same. <laughs> and we got one call from Steve Brown. Hello, Jason, David. This is Steve, and uh, this is for the uh, Westworld, the OG, the original nineteen seventies, whatever. Um, year it was i i don't remember right now i love this movie i remember watching this movie multiple times uh as a kid um uh, you know obviously not in the theater because i was a child but uh but later when i first saw it and watching it uh many times as a kid and just enjoying it and i just want everybody if, if you're watching it just remember it is a 1970s movie so all right man james brolin like, you can definitely tell that Josh Brolin is his kid. Like, they're carbon copies of each other. Of course, you don't really think you shot anybody, did you? 
Yo, I forgot that he killed uh, Yul Brenner, Black Cat Cowboy, twice. I'm assuming no real snakes were harmed in the shooting of this scene where they shoot the snake. Well, I forgot. This is tense. There's like almost 30 minutes left of this movie, and um, we've seen James Brolin get killed, and now uh, the the Yul Brenner Black Hat Cowboy is chasing the other guy. Well, thanks, Debbie Downer, and now you're just killed by the gunslinger. This guy just keeps coming like the Terminator, man. 1973 Terminator. Yeah, vacation for you uh, there at the end. Um, yeah, $1,000 a day. Wow. Uh, can't wait to hear you guys talk about this one. I don't know if they're going to do future, a future world or not. Uh, future world is the sequel that came out. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, talk to you later. <laughs> That's Steve's new method of calling in is he'll just comment as he goes along and then um i'm always thankful that together. he made it to the end of the movie yes <laughs> yeah i'm glad you love that movie that's cool yeah classic call and and i would say um as we mentioned earlier my suggestion for a follow-up would be uh andromeda strain rather than future world mm-hmm. cool check that one out All right, that is our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, David. Glad we finally got around to doing this one. It's cool. I am too. Long overdue. I enjoyed it. I'm yeah. glad I liked it. I was worried that it would. I would just think it was cheesy or something. But that really, really would have been a. That would have been a Debbie Downer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, if you guys want to write in or record a message and send it in, you can email us at. Where should I say? I guess you can use Westworld at podcastica.com uh we also put up a post for each week's episode on our facebook page at facebook.com slash house podcastica be sure to check out the other great podcasts at podcastica.com karen and i recently covered the queen's gambit on walking dead cast which is really fun that show was great wasn't it i know i want to watch it again i only got to watch it once before we recorded but um They've been talking about, or actually the actress Anya Taylor-Joy mentioned if they were to do a sequel, what she would like that to be. And I'm like, oh, something should be just left. But it's so successful that I wouldn't be too shocked if they did. I don't know. What do you think? I think it was pretty perfect the way it was. Yeah. How do you follow that up? I mean, like, with what? Right. She was saying she'd like to see her character as a mother. But I don't know. I guess if it was good, I'd be open to it. Um, but it was a great show next episode of this podcast I think Richard and Rima and I are going to cover the new Pat Morita bio documentary that just came out it's called More Than Miyagi the Pat Morita story it's getting good reviews so if you guys are into that and you want to watch it before we cover it you can rent it from all the usual places YouTube, Apple, Amazon Prime etc also I want to remind you guys you can get this podcast ad free if you pledge $2 or more per month at patreon.com slash Jason Cabassi. So thanks guys. I appreciate your support. $2. Everybody can afford that. I want my $2. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's our show. Thanks for listening. All right. Let's start that bar fight. Woo.
<laughs> we got a vacation for you. <laughs> you, 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 you. <laughs>